Welcome to Eggshell Transformations, a podcast for intense people. My name is Imi, and I'm here with you on a journey. Hi, everyone. Oh, I am so excited about today's episode. This is possibly the most comprehensive and informative conversation we can have about the traits over control. All credits go to Hope Arnold, a brilliant ROTBT therapist who specializes in this trait. We pretty much covered everything about overcontrol. Its presentation, definition, origins, and treatment methods. It is very much relevant to highly sensitive people, as overcontrol is developed out of an innate underlying threat sensitivity. If you find yourself having issues with perfectionism, rigidity, emotional loneliness, and that many traditional psychotherapy doesn't seem to work for you, this episode may be for you. Hope pretty much covered everything there is about this topic. You can tell how excited I was in the conversation by how many questions I asked. Whether or not you have this tendency, I'm sure you can learn a lot from this. Now to Hope. Hi, okay. Hope. It is so good to have you on this platform. How are you Thank today? You. Thank you so much. I'm great. It's lovely to be here. Appreciate yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So I came across your work and I just thought, oh my God, I want to speak to her. And then I went on the rabbit hole of trying to find other places that you've been, other talks that you've done. And I just felt so amazed by the clarity in your thoughts and how systematic you were in your thinking and well, thank how you. eloquent you were and able to deliver it. Um, saying that, after I heard another podcast that says you're leaning on the over-control side, I'm yes. not surprised that you're so <laughs> organized and systematic. Yeah, definitely. We think um, that most people, you know, like, well, we do think everybody leans one way or another, and we have to kind of choose for ourselves. Do we tend to be more, you know, um, controlled and able to inhibit impulses? Or are we actually struggle with that? And, you know, neither one of them is good or bad. It's just like, naturally how we are. Absolutely. I mean, but well, that's exactly high audience. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about, which is a tendency that we call over-control. Mm-hmm. Um, we may talk about it clinically in the sense of its relationship to certain diagnosable disorder. Um, mm-hmm. But when I, because I have other guests to talk about, say, OCPD, but when I speak with you, Hope, I just thought I want you to talk about this tendency itself called over-control, sure. what it looks like and your conceptualization of it. And I know your background comes from radically open DBT, which is something that I've been diving in into lately, having a lot of interest in, and maybe describe it from that angle. Yeah, absolutely. So what we think is happening in over-control is four areas. And those areas are high detail focus processing, high impulse control, um, high threat sensitivity and low reward sensitivity. So if it's okay, I'll just kind of break down those four. Yes, please just tell us. What is, just the question is, what is over control? Just tell yeah. us. So a high detail focus processing is this really cool thing where I can see details quickly, maybe see a book out of alignment or something like that. And then um, that 
in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem, but when I get emotional about seeing the book out of alignment, then I might go and straighten it if I'm at someone's house. And that kind of looks a little anal. <laughs> and so someone might, you know, struggle with that. Um, high impulse control is the ability to actually stop ourselves from doing something. And that could be sh- stopping ourselves from showing an emotion. Mm. It could be stopping ourselves from eating some cake. It could be stopping ourselves from doing something um, like going to a party when we actually need to work. And so in some ways it can be good or bad. Sounds very functional so far. <laughs> it could it be. Like all the things that school and society and companies wants us to do. Yes, right there. You hit the nail on the head, which is why I think over control in general is um, not, hasn't really been focused on or talked about is because it has like some very functional societal components to it. And then the last two components kind of go together. So high threat sensitivity and low reward sensitivity. High threat sensitivity is sort of seeing the thorns and not so much the roses. So Mm. if someone walks into a room, maybe they're scanning the faces for someone that doesn't like them. Mm. And that can be really tough Mm. socially. And low reward sensitivity is kind of like, you know, people with over control aren't really getting excited about the same kinds of things that the general public is getting excited about. And so they don't feel very good a lot. They might actually feel quite sad, depressed, Mm. lonely Mm. often. Yeah. Yeah. I always think about my particular, I've got so many questions I want to ask you. One (laughs) question in the back of my head isn't too organized, but one question is, are the traits that you described, are they all a part of the bio temperament? that would contribute to this or are they built up traits that doesn't necessarily come from the biology innate traits? So those four that I just spoke of are specifically the biotemperamental traits. Mm. And so that means that, you know, someone with high levels of over-control are born with those traits. Mm. And then there's a giant spectrum of, you know, people that are having different kinds of traits. So not everybody obviously has got a high level of biotemperamental over control, mm. but those that do particularly are well suited for RODBT. Right. Cause I always think of the people that I work with. So I specialize with people who are highly sensitive and intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are also very gifted. So they have a very excitable system. I mm-hmm. wouldn't say they have a high threshold for getting enjoyment out of life. Uh, although they do get bored easily. But then most of them, I would think, including myself, to be honest, definitely have high um, uh, threat sensitivity. Yeah. And actually, I, I looked at the research and it's it goes back from, to, to what's her name? I forgot her name, Cragen. From in, to infant research they've done ages ago where Elaine Aaron built his HSD high sensitivity, sorry, <laughs> high, high, highly sensitive, person constructs on that certain babies are born more sensitive yeah yeah you know let me um the one thing that as you were talking it made me think about is you know a lot of times people with over controlled are called sensitive yeah and many times what happens is that they don't necessarily always relate to that label though no i I, i'm Mm -hmm. surprised that you say that because i thought they would come across as insensitive and very emotionally inhibited and very stoic. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes what we see is that there's a public persona and a private persona. So maybe at home Mm. they are looking extremely um, emotional potentially Mm. because they're Mm. with their safe people. 
But in public, they might be looking very, very stoic or calm or Mm -hmm. like they don't care about things. And then the sensitivity part of it is they might be, you know, that they might relate to what we call that threat sensitivity, but they might not be getting sensitive about, you know, other kinds of issues necessarily. They just sort of roll off their back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about interpersonal interpersonal realm? Like, yeah, because because I, because threat is not just being chased by a tiger, isn't it? Exactly. Because yeah. a negative comment or a friend not replying your text can feel like a threat. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things we see with people that are threat sensitive is they really are looking for, um, you know, the threat in everyday situation. So, you know, maybe you make a funny face at me and I kind of go like, oh, she doesn't like me. Mm-hmm. And that might be a threat sensitive response to, mm-hmm. for an, uh, for an over-controlled person. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people that maybe don't have that high level of threat sensitivity are kind of like, oh, well, you know, maybe she's, you know, having a tough morning or something like that. They might be making, giving people the benefit of the doubt more mm-hmm. in those kind of areas. But I think for the threat sensitive person, you know, they may see um, expressions and they don't know how to read them or particularly mm. neutral expressions are very, very hard for. Yeah, the still face experiments. Yes, exactly. I've watched that video for so many times. I used to teach um, therapists and whenever I teach a class, I always show that video and I have yeah. watched it so, so many times and it's mm-hmm. still heartbreaking. People, it is. what we're talking about Go on to YouTube and search still face experiment and you will see a short clip, but um, be prepared. It, it, it can be a little bit triggering, uh, mm-hmm. especially if you have attachment trauma of some sort. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't thinking we we're going to dive in and talk about threat sensitivity. It, it is a real point of interest for me. I'm really loving how you've constructed it because People who are over-controlled can often come across as so aloof and dismissive and even cold. But what we're saying is, no, these are not unfeeling people. Inside, they are deeply sensitive, but they have chosen a way, or or not chosen, but they have got a way of coping that is over-controlled. Would you say that is accurate? Yeah, I would say that, you know, we people that that have the high threat sensitivity are interpreting data as very threatening. Yeah. And then they're having potentially very negative emotional reactions. Or there's one little point here that I think is worth mentioning, which is sometimes for people that have high over control, they may not actually register the the emotionality of something until after the fact, an hour, maybe even a day. And then they're kind of like, oh my gosh, that was really stressful to me. Why didn't I recognize it at the time? Yeah. Yeah. And therapy helps, you know, when we do the back chain analysis once Mm -hmm. at a time, I'm not done. I, by the way, I've just started my training in RODBT. Oh, great. Um, Yeah. yeah, So I'm not even there in the chain analysis step yet, but I I know of it from uh, convention, you know, normal normal dbt yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. dbt whatever we call it now the line time dbt anyway yeah. why don't you tell us what ro dbt sure so yes. <laughs> i'd be happy to so one of the things uh dr lynch noticed as he was working actually um with in um dr marshall linehan who tr- who developed traditional dbt her clinic is that there were some people that really weren't getting better mm. and 
he started to be researching why that was. And what he found out is that a lot of these people were being told, you know, you're very dysregulated and you have all these emotions and you're impulsive and the, and they're kind of like, okay. And so they're just kind of going with it because what they f- they figure out is actually that over-controlled people at first are very polite and kind of like are trying to understand things and they want help. But what they're actually not telling you is that they don't agree with you sometimes mm. at first, but they might tell you after, after the fact, uh, or they just don't show up to therapy anymore. And yeah, which happens. <laughs> and so one of the things that happened is that he started going like, what is going on with them? And actually he found out that they are distress over tolerating. Mm. So they're having all this emotion and it's not going anywhere. It's staying inside of them. And then they're developing all kinds of other issues, maybe even mm-hmm. like psychosomatic issues and distress yeah. over, oh, sorry, distress over tolerating. Yes. I get it. But I was just thinking oh, before this work, I think very few people would hear that and think, is that a problem? <laughs> right. I'm exactly. able to tolerate a huge amount of distress. Why is that a problem? But yes, yes, people, research has found that apparently wellness and control lies on a bell curve. So when you're mm-hmm. under control, it's not good. And when you're mm-hmm. over over control, it's not good too. But yes, mm-hmm. by and large, our society encourages us to have a degree of self-control and it's good. But not to the extreme. Sorry, I interrupted. No, I love what you said. I mean, it would be nice for us to be able to, you know, and evolutionarily, it would be really helpful for us, you know, if we're in a tribe together and hunter gatherer stage, like it'd be really nice if you and I go collect apples together and then I don't eat all the apples overnight or something like that. So I can share them with our tribe. We need a certain level of control in order to survive. And so that's actually very important. But, but if we are over over control, we will never have sex. So not, <laughs> well, that's yeah. not going to work. We won't have any. Co- we won't have connection at all, right? You know, yeah. I might not put myself out there, and I might not mm. actually find a partner or a friend, even because mm. a lot of people with high over control are very lonely people, and mm. they're they're very sad. If you don't mind, I'd like to say a little bit more about distress over tolerance. Mm. Um, oh yes, please. So. so Distress over tolerance is usually made up of two things. One is this maladaptive perfectionism. And that means like a high, um, having high standards in almost all areas of our life with this giant fear of failing. So I want to do everything I can to make sure that I don't fail and I'm terrified of it. And so I work myself to the bone. And then the second part of distress over tolerance is unhealthy task perseveration. So mm. basically continuing in a course of action and it's no longer rewarding or there's no progress being made. So oh. maybe I'm in a relationship and I, you know, keep trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and nothing's getting better and I don't leave it. And so that's a distress over tolerance re- reaction. Potentially. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you get hit by a car and you don't really seek medical attention. Exactly. <laughs> or something is, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. We, I mean, there's a lot of, I actually have two clients right now who have been told by their physicians to, they are no longer allowed to run because they have stress fractures. Oh God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm still interested in threat sensitivity. The the reason why I wanted to are, are we done re, are we done introducing ROBT by the way? 
Sure, I think so. I mean, I think yeah. we've done a pretty good job of it. So, so no, you have done yeah. a pretty good job. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, what I find interesting is I know the whole construct is built on putting under control next to over control, because DBT is defined for people who are dysregulated and under control, and RO DBT is the opposite.、Mm-hmm. But I know that threat sensitivity also underlies under control. Yes.、Mm-hmm. So. It's an, it's interesting. I I want to know. You may not have the answer, but how how have people used over control to deal with threat sensitivity, and why it could look the opposite way. So let me say、um, I, one thing about the threat sensitivity on the under control side. We know, and this may be a little clinical, but I think it's worth mentioning things like、mm-hmm. antisocial personality disorder and. Borderline personality disorder—they both have a high level of threat sensitivity,、mm. and so that's why you see that emotional liability. But you also see with them reward sensitivity as well. So if you're working potentially with someone that has borderline personality disorder, they may be very happy, excitable one moment, and the next moment they're actually very sad and upset, and that liability there. Yeah. Is、uh, very different. So an over-controlled、uh, person might not be showing the happy side at all. Potentially, they might、so、that, just be sort of dysphoric. Oh, I get it now. So that varying fact, the the that variance, that factor of excitability, is really what delineates which way one would go. Right.、Sense. Exactly. Yeah, That's a yeah. 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 You're hearing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely, and it, you know, to be honest, like. Most of us would rather have like some level of excitement and reward、mm. in our life because that's fun. Like it's nice to be able to join with people and have、mm. some good experiences. And a lot of our over-controlled people are really quite miserable.、Um, well,、yeah. talking until this point, I don't think we have actually given our audience a.、Um, A sense or a, a thorough description of what someone with over control look like.、Um, can we try and paint a pic- paint a picture, or even use a case example that you have、yeah. to see to bring it to life? Because we've mentioned well, a lot of clinical terms and traits, but I think it would be useful to bring it to life a little bit. Obviously, not everyone will be the same. There are many people with different manifestation of the same thing. But can you try and Give us a, maybe a case example of someone that you work with. Sure. Let me、um, let me give some traits or some some qualities or characteristics. Yes, that would be good. Over control, because I think actually one of the things that tends to happen for people is that over control can look very very different from person to person, and which、mm. you know diagnostic. But if we're just going for like characteristics, you know, they might be like rigid, and sometimes they might have trouble with. Uh, being flexible to new situations, being fearful of doing something new, they might prefer order and structure.、Mm-hmm. So, getting、um, a sense of like, you know, wanting things to be planned out would be maybe an over-controlled person.、Mm-hmm. They may also、um, feel like they don't really know how to join with people, and you know, we've we've said this characteristic of loneliness, emotional loneliness, a lot.、Mm-hmm. They also.、Um, May tend to find that they feel very strongly about、um, certain beliefs that they have, and that they are 
kind of maybe at times unwavering about those belief systems because they think they're the right thing to do. And um, so in general, it's this sense of structure, order, perfectionism, and particularly feeling like wanting everything to be in uh, an alignment or in a certain way. Mm. Yeah. And how does this make life difficult? Sure. Yeah. You know, the, the thing I think about the most is like, if I'm trying to be perfect all the time, mm. it's really hard <laughs> to try and relate to another human being because first of all, nobody's perfect. And we know that cognitively, but when someone actually stops trying to do perfect actions all the time, they make it really down on themselves or they might fall apart or they might burn out because they're trying so, so hard. We see a ton of burnout people that are workaholics are overworking with over control. And then the connection um, in particular, you know, we might see something that we call task over relationship mm. where I'm working really, really, really hard. And then I don't think about how that might affect my spouse or my kiddo. Mm. Yeah. How does I was going to ask how does it hold us back from intimacy, but I think you've probably just answered that. Yeah, you know, and I, I also think, and on the other side, so um, there are people that might be putting their task efforts into building a nice home. It doesn't always mean work, like in the sense of like going to work, like in an office building or something like that, but it might be like, I'm burning myself out because I need my home to be ordered and structured and perfect in a certain way. And then I don't have any time left over for me. I don't ever really like feel like I can relax. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes they might have clock up a lot of stress in their body without realizing. Oh, absolutely. We see all kinds of uh, internalization disorders. So somatic symptoms like, you know, IBS, or stomach problems, or any kind of thing that happens that, you know, muscle tension, and needing a lot of chiropractic work, or <laughs> uh, massage work, or things like that, because they are so tight, or we see a lot of headaches as well, a lot of pain. Mm. Do you think someone who has this tendency, listening up until this point, would realize it by now? Or are there particular questions you might ask? In fact, what assessment tool do you use? Yeah, you know, I think most of the time what happens, at least in my office, is that someone that is over control leaning comes in and I'll ask them, you know, do you have something like, do, do you feel like it's important to do things properly or right? Like, and they might go, yeah, I do. I think it's important to do that. And so we start asking them those questions and they kind of get that thing. Like, do you like order and structure? Those kinds of questions. And it starts to formulate for them that that is actually what over-control leaning is. What I think is important to think about is most people go to therapy and they're maybe being told that they need to work on their emotions or, or something like that. But actually what we're trying to present them with is like, how are they relating to others? This is a super relational therapy. Like how do I show up to I'm another person? To hear that. I'm glad to hear that. It is relational. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And how, how does my signaling and how does my talking to another person get me my needs met? And does it take into the account the needs of the other person? Because this is a two-way street, you know, it takes two to tango kind of. Um, and do I feel good and close? And am I building intimacy with someone? And how am I doing that? And how do I make a friend? And so those are the kinds of things that we might be talking about when someone comes in. And a lot of times people are like, oh, yeah, I want to learn how to do all that stuff. Mm. <sighs> well, I, have you heard of the term quiet borderline? No, I haven't. Um, do you want to share? Maybe? Yeah, like, it's, it's not an cl- official clinical diagnosis, but it is something that's quite anecdotal and people talk about it a lot on online forums and things. I've written about it. I do think you can tell when you work with people with borderline personality disorder, which I've done for many years, mm-hmm. some people are quote-unquote quieter, means they mm-hmm. hold things in rather than externalize it. So they, they do internalize things and anger and a lot of these things more than externalizing. So they don't fit a lot of the so-called classic BPD symptoms or the stereotype of someone being very you know dramatic and impulsive. And that got me thinking if they may have the trait of being over-controlled, but they still fit the diagnosis of BPD. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that would be how I construct quiet BPD. Yeah. It's hard to say, um, you know, case by case, and definitely I would, you know, defer to your clinical judgment about the diagnostics. But I think a lot of times what we do see is the the misdiagnostic criteria is something like, you know, how or, or who and where and when are they showing this dysregulation? Right. And is it happening all the time? Or is it happening just at home? And there's a concept of leakage, leakage. Yes. And the ABTS and it talk about that. Yeah. So leaking is basically this idea of like, I've been holding things in mm. for a long period of time. And here's the thing. Everybody breaks. Everybody, you know, it doesn't matter if you're like a Navy SEAL or, you know, uh, some a teenager, like everybody breaks. Yeah. And because we all have things that happen to us that are, painful or outside of our control. And the more that we try to hold it in, the more our body's like, hey, no, you need to actually let this out. And so sometimes what happens is that people that are over control are trying to hold something in and then they may um, leak in ways that they're not expecting. Like the example that I always give is like, if you've ever, there's these commercials in um, the US that are for like dog adoption agencies. And they're like, donate to these dog, um, uh, uh, I don't know, rescues or something like that. And every time I see one, I start crying because I'm like, this is so sad. And so I don't expect to cry at a commercial that just like comes on the TV, but that would be a leak for me. And I don't have a lot of self judgments about that. I care about animals. I think they're important. But what is a problem for over-controlled people is if they were to cry and then kind of feel shame Mm. or feel disconnected or beat themselves up for having like a normal emotion about something, even though if it was an unexpected event. Mm. And a lot of times, uh, you know, we might be, if we're uh, talking to someone about how do they emotionally express, they might say, well, you know, five years ago, I cried one time uh, at work and I would be like, 
oh, okay, you know, and it might have been the worst day of their life. And you kind of think like, that seems like an appropriate response to whatever was going on for them, but they may have a lot of shame about that. They may not be doing that very often at all. So can we run through some of the childhood upbringings that may cause these traits or contribute to it? Because obviously it builds on the innate temperament, but I'm guessing there are also certain later year things. Yeah, you know, we can start seeing over-control tendencies as early as age maybe four or five. And there's actually some research going on with very, very young, shy, timid, risk-averse kids out of the um, out of St. Louis going on right now with uh, um, Dr. Gilbert there. And one of the things that she's finding is that, you know, these are patterns that are happening based on the biology, very, very young. What's so interesting about the upbringing is that it can, it's not so, it's not so tightly wrapped. You know, we can see maybe, so say, maybe an over-controlled person was raised by a parent that was very emotionally dysregulated. They might look at that parent and go like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be that. That doesn't feel right to me. That feels too emotional or I don't like that. And so then they may start tamping down their emotional expression and get really quiet or work really hard to get out of that environment. That could might be one side. The other side might be what people have termed, you know, helicopter parenting, where someone is like up in their business all the time, get good grades, do this, succeed, da, 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 da. and that can create that environment of over control also where you got to be perfect all the time. Mm. And so it's not one particular set of parents that upbring either side, but, and there could be a, a, a range in the middle there as well, but we do tend to see that they are reacting to something in their environment based on their biology mm. and going kind of like, that doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a typical type that you see again and again? No, you know, I would say, at least in my clinic, that's more of the the be perfect kind of message from parents. But I, I do see enough of the reaction to maybe a dysregulated environment that could mm-hmm. create it as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if they have been parentified, if they have to be little grown-ups yeah. from such a young age, you know, you have no choice but to, but to disown the part of you that's playful and spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and you think that's such a great example of of how, you know, responding to one's environment enhances that biological tendency. And then if I do have to be the parent or parent, my parent, or maybe I've lost a parent, there's nobody to parent, Mm. then I can really, really take on that role of the tiny adult. Mm. Tell us about some of the clinical diagnoses that are associated with being over-controlled. Sure. So the kind of quintessential one is OCPD, so Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder. Which is not OCD. Yes, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we definitely get a lot of people saying like, do you treat OCD? I'm like, not the way that you're thinking. So um, that's, one, that's one of the top ones we see. We also see autism spectrum disorders, particularly for me. I see some, a lot of females that have been misdiagnosed with all kinds of things yeah. um, that actually have some of autism spectrum. Mm. And we see anorexia a lot in clinic and um 
dependent really? personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Dependent too? I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, that's actually one of those ones that there's, we're trying to understand that one a little bit better, at least in the RO world, because dependency could look over or under controlled. And we actually think it could be either one. I'm just thinking how someone might have to really watch themselves in order to preserve the connection with the person they th- they're dependent on. So I'm thinking of people that I work with who have this trait and they, they are actually over-controlled, although they have dysregulations, but it's because they are so afraid of losing the attachment. They would mm. absolutely bite their tongue and sit on their hands. So they mm-hmm. won't say anything wrong in order to not piss off the other part person. So they yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So that actually makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think with what we so a lot of time the misdiagnostic with BPD is actually DPD, dependent personality, and because I do see some of my dependent personality disorder clients that self harm quite regularly, mm-hmm. and when someone that has the dependency part, they really, so let me actually talk a little bit about attachment and RO. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, it, yeah. I, I was going to ask you about Oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, one of the things we see is it's not fear of abandonment, but fear of attachment. Mm. And for us, it's like, once I'm attached, I am terrified to lose that person. Yeah. And but it might take me a long time to attach if I'm an over-controlled, high biology person. And when I start so to So are see they anxious or avoidance? I just avoidance. the question. Are they? Yes, avoidant. Yeah. And the reason we would say avoidant is not because they don't feel the anxiety. Mm. They might feel an- anxious, but they're acting avoidant. Yeah. Because we're just throwing out these jargons. But I, I think a lot of you might be familiar with attachment styles. And if not... Um, I'll refer you to an article online that I've written, or there will be plenty of resources online about the, the different styles, namely, well, there are different names to them, isn't it? Ambivalence, anxious, resistant. Yeah. But broadly, it's basically anxious, avoidance, and disorganized, and obviously mm-hmm. secure too. So four kinds of attachment types. Mm-hmm. So we won't go into details about what they are, but we're mm-hmm. excitedly discussing people who have over-control, do they tend to have avoidant personal, uh, uh, attachment style? See, yeah. that's what I thought, but more and more I'm wondering, well, but then, yes, in terms of behavior, they're avoidant, but what they're feeling is anxiety. So yeah. isn't everyone just deep down anxious anyway? <laughs> well, isn't that a great question, right? So, you know, I mean, I guess what we would say is like, at least for us, the way to conceptualize it in RO is because the behavior is so avoidant. Mm. I don't leave. I don't do anything that would maybe disrupt the relationship if I am already attached and I don't want to lose it. And at the same time, you know, it's not that they're the avoidant person isn't feeling anything. I don't think. I think they feel actually quite a bit. They just maybe are acting in ways that are very kind of aloof or distant or un, uh, un like not understandable to others. And they're like kind of like, why are they just not saying like, "Hey, I like you. I want to be with you. Let's work this out." Um, and sometimes what happens for people that have high levels of control is that they 
if they aren't getting what they want, they will walk away and abandon a relationship rather than fight. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So we classify that as avoidant attachment. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think people who tend to be avoidant have been neglected in the literature, in the media, and even within mental health? Yeah. Field? It's a that's a great question. I think or, or what we call cluster C personality disorders, which are the dependence, avoidance, um, paranoid, and OCPD. They just yeah. don't get as much attention compared to say antisocial or borderline. I mean borderline yeah. is clearly very talked about wherever mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the reason that they don't is because they aren't big dramatic disorders. Yeah. They are quiet. People are suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. They aren't tend to being disruptive. You know, like we were talking about earlier, sometimes society really values the traits of over-control. Mm-hmm. And so they aren't getting the attention because the, like, they're not being screamed for attention. They're kind of like being quiet about it. And yet they're suffering so significantly mm-hmm. that it's really tough yeah. for them and, um, but we are seeing more and more and more people that are having chronic depression, chronic anxiety that aren't presenting loud, dramatic ways. Mm, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Ah, speaking of that, I have a question. What does it look like when your clients who are over control gets angry or if they get angry at all? Sure. <laughs> I can give you, I guess, a verbal example. Do they know they are angry or do they just have a headache? <laughs> So um, without going too much into personality, the big five personality traits, like there's this spectrum oh, of, a, go into it. Okay, okay. well, there's one called a, agreeableness versus disagreeableness. But, but, but sorry, before you, I'm so sure. sorry, I'm excited. No, it's okay. Are, are there correlation between over control and say conscientiousness? And because um, I would imagine it to be related to conscientiousness and, and neuroticism. So I have to back that up. I have to be honest. I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I would imagine there would be, but I, I, I can't Google, speak to it. Yeah, I actually did the Google Scholar search earlier today. I think there were one research on eat, uh, one paper on eating disorder that associates it with neuroticism and low level and openness. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would definitely think the neuroticism for sure. I I don't actually know. So, I mean, you probably actually know more about that than I do about. Oh, well, no, I just did a five minute. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, the one that I do know is that we see this, this uh, agreeable, disagreeable right. personality trait. And you can be either agreeable, which would be more of the dependent thing. Um, versus the disagreeable, which would be more of the OCPD issue. Is that the two subtypes Mm -hmm. of people who are over control? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have that overly disagreeable, overly agreeable. And so if an over, a a lot of times our overly agreeable clients, the ones that are really valuing relationship and Mm -hmm. really wanting things to go well and harmony and things like that, they actually usually don't register anger very well. They might say words like, oh, I'm so annoyed at that person or, you know, that was really annoying, but they won't say I'm irritated or I'm angry. So really watching their language, we might actually be helping those clients be like, I'm mad at you. (laughs) You know, we might actually really want to teach them that emotional language. Yeah. 
and conveying that to whoever they're talking to. For a disagreeable, they know that they're angry mm. a lot. Mm. And so they may be dominating or saying, I'm pissed off or I just want to kill that person. And they may not actually mean it in like real terms like they're not actually going to go harm somebody but maybe they do is what we were trying to actually get them to do on the disagreeable side is use language that's more varied and actually understand that probably what's underneath that is hurt sadness Mm -hmm. something that's going on there that's not just Mm -hmm. anger um i don't know if that answers the question but i hope it does yes Mm -hmm. um so question, I find no feel question, because I think we have talked a lot about the trades, but it's almost time we come to give people some hope and direction to go. Yeah, to. absolutely. Uh-huh. Let's talk, talk a little bit about treatments and the solution out. Um, another negative question, though, why doesn't CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, work for C- OC, um, over control typically? Or does it? Does it work? You know, I don't think it works for high levels of over control mm. as well as like RODBT. And the reason being that a lot of our over control leaning clients are really quite good at doing like, um, you know, evidence for and evidence against a mm. particular thought. Like they do that in their head already. They already mm. kind of go like, well, is this true or is that not true or things like that? What RODBT does that I think is amazing is it talks about social signaling and Basically, what a social signal is, is anything that another person can see me do in front of them. And so I have to be actually in the presence of someone or, you know, frankly, on Zoom or something like that in order to see someone's signaling. And texting is not a social signal, by the way, always like, you know, because that's just like an email. It's not something that we can read inflection or voice tone or things from. And so what RO does is it looks at how is it that I'm conveying myself that might be interrupting me having strong connected relationships. And so if I, you know, tell my kiddo, like, uh, you know, you got to get straight A's, you got to play ball really well, or yeah, nothing's a problem. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. You know, both sides of agreeable, disagreeable side of this different examples. It's going to convey something that that may not be what I hope it will convey. So if I'm telling my kid, do the best, do the best, do the best, and they hear like nothing's ever good enough. Actually, what I may be trying to convey is something like, I believe in you and I trust you, but I need to say, I believe in you, I trust you. Or on the other side, like everything's okay. I might actually be trying to mean something like, you know, um, I think things will work out. You know, I understand that you're trying really hard and it's getting them to use the actual language that they need to use in order to convey their message, mm-hmm. not just like canned things that they always say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. How can people learn? So we talked about threat sensitivity a lot in the beginning mm-hmm. of our conversation. Are there things people can do to downregulate their threat system? In, so what we teach them is a number of skills that help them get into what we call their social safety system. So feeling safe, calm, and relaxed. Most people enjoy feeling those things. (laughs) And, you know, threat system is anxious or irritated. So if I'm feeling anxious or irritated and I start to notice that, 
one of the things we might tell them to do is things like move their face. Mm. We know that their face is related to some, mm. uh, their nervous system. And when they move their face, they can actually activate their social safety system. One of the big ones we teach is like eyebrow wags. So moving your eyebrows up and down, you know, not all the time, but just like kind of to get ourselves. Can you tell our audience what an eyebrow (laughs) wag is? Yeah. So it's like moving my eyebrows, like kind of up, not scrunched together in the center, but up and down and up and down. Oh, great. Yours are great. (laughs) And so, um, and the reason that we do that is because we know those um, facial muscles are innervated, which then signals to the rest of our body that says, hey, everything's great. We're all chill here. We can't mm-hmm. do that if we have too much Botox then. That's correct. Yeah, that's actually a, a thing that we are, we talk a lot about with our clients is, you know, especially if they have migraines or issues, like make sure you know where you're getting your Botox. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And yeah, so we want them, their eyebrows to move. We also tell them, you know, t- uh, slowing their breath, six breaths a minute. Mm. When we actually slow our breath down significantly it helps us. We don't want to go too low because we'll pass out. You know, we don't want to go so low, but, mm. but, you know, under five, but about five to six breaths a minute actually slows our nervous system down. And other things that we can do is similar to, um, you know, touch related things like weighted blankets and, you know, uh, animals and hugging people that we love um, things like that, that actually feel safe and calm. We really, really encourage those kinds of, of tools. And then we call them social safety activations. There's also a meditation that we use specifically to activate our social safety system. And actually on my website, you can download, um, download it for free. Yeah. And, um, it's designed to turn on that social safety system. So in, I think a lot of people use it either when they're anxious or irritated or before social events so that they can feel like they can socialize well. And mm-hmm. one of the cool things about that meditation is that the research actually shows that it can give you about 20 minutes to four hours of social mm-hmm. safety activation at a time, which is great. If you have to go to a party and you're trying to make friends, you know, it might be nice to feel pretty calm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of clients are very much into getting some skills or tricks they can do, which I understand. And things like RLDBT offers that a lot. But Mm -hmm. I always tell them, and although it's harder to believe in something that is intangible and hard to describe, but really I think it's the corrective experience with a therapist that counts. Mm rather than a lot of the tricks and skills that you can do yourself. I think, I think anyway, it's the, it's a corrective healing relationship with the, with a counselor or therapist and also the modeling of openness that really help. Mm-hmm. Mm. Definitely. I agree with the, the, the modeling. And one of the things that happens a lot in our LGBT individual sessions is we're role-playing social signals. How do you want to show up to another person? And the therapist is actually helping them figure out how they want to signal because at times they're not always sure. And when we do a new behavior, you know, we need feedback from kind of a trusted advisor or friend to show them what they're doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So coming towards the end, uh, for a few more questions, what would you say to 
our audience, let's say some of them is like, oh my God, I totally identify with having over-control issue. Yeah. What would be a few things or maybe a message that you can say to them now? Sure. I would say, first of all, uh, you're not alone. Mm. And we're so glad that you identified as over-controlled because identification that this might be the primary problem can lead you to get the right help. So there's a whole therapy designed for you and finding an ROGBT therapist is um, kind of actually as easy as going to radicallyopen.net, which is the international organization that, that provides the training. Mm. And so go and look and see if there's one in your area. And if, <clears throat> if not, more and more and more people are getting trained. And so I think that it, those numbers will continue to go up in your area. Yeah. And we know that it's being translated into um, different languages, uh, Spanish, Portuguese. I, we just got contacted by um, a group in China to start oh, looking yeah. at that as well. Mm-hmm. And so we're hopeful that that grows. Yeah, so it's being translated into all these different languages. And um, so, yeah, that would be the first part. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Hope, for giving us hope. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed my time with you. I really love your energy and enthusiasm and how much you know about your topic. You're clearly passionate about this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, love it. I have a pretty personal question towards the end. Like, what, sure. What got you interested in this? Is there a personal connection? Is it yourself or someone that you're close to that struggle with this? Yeah, so two things that happened for me. One, I was working in a clinic that did traditional DBT, and I was finding that so many clients were not getting better with traditional DBT. And so I was like, there has got to be something else. And so when I heard about RO, and actually my mentor was like, go, 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 (laughs) let's go get you involved in this. And so that was the first thing. And particularly one client, she kept saying like, I am not what you are saying I am with traditional DBT. That's really powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had to listen and I had to go, okay, well then what is she? You know, I feel like as a clinician, I need to be ethical about listening to what my client is saying and, and finding a therapy that will work. And the system is failing them for not providing this. I do think most psychotherapies probably geared towards helping people structure things and gain more awareness and self insight, which people who over control already do quite well in a lot Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and the second part of this is that I think you know my dad has passed away since this time but he I'm pretty sure he had OCPD and um, when I started to learn about over control I thought oh my goodness this would have been so helpful for me to know when I was 16 so I could have related to him in a different way and um you know, I, I have I have no way to go back and ask him at this point. You know, does this fit for you? But it seems like it might. This is yeah. so strange because my father has the same. Oh wow! Well, yeah, yeah. Really, all my life, and it's to be fair, it, as a child, it's quite difficult to live mm-hmm. with someone with OCPD tendency. He's a very well. Obviously, he's extremely responsible, mm-hmm. so he's not a bad person, not a bad father in that that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when things get out of line, when I made a mistake, yeah. Oh God, the rage that comes. It's mm-hmm. I, I I can tell now he couldn't help it. 
But as a child, you can feel really punished and you internal, I internalized a lot of that shame. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, and for me, I think the thing that happened was do better, be perfect. Mm. And, you know, that's why we talk about this lean of over control and what it taught you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you'll go one way or another if you have a parent that has this. But for me, it was so incredibly helpful to go like, there's a name for this thing. Mm. And now I have it and I kind of have been like, oh, well, I took on this trait and maybe not that one. And, you know, I don't know that I have a generally high or a low th- reward. I think my reward is actually quite high. So mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that personal um, side of things with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to add? No, I feel great. I um I really appreciate your time and and letting me share this on in this path and avenue and um I'm just so excited when people hear this and then they kind of go like this is me. Mm-hmm. And you know, if something doesn't particularly fit about what we talked about here, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't be helped from RO. Mm-hmm. So, I think the thing to tell some of my over control leaning people that might be listening is like, hey, if not everything fits, go get an assessment. Make sure you didn't get stuck in the details yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say to people, like, if you are working with someone that you have a good relationship with, you don't want to go and find another therapist, maybe you can bring this up to your to your therapist. Or you know, just, just tell you tell them what you've read and your sure, insights. Yeah. That would be useful. Um so I don't want people to despair and think, oh no, I'm in the wrong therapy because you know, as I said earlier, if you're in good humanistic relational therapy, that itself does a lot already. Just having a therapeutic relationship is good healing. And there are many different approaches to this, not just our DBT, mm. but it's certainly useful. Oh my God, this is such a good episode. I can't <laughs> wait to air it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I had fun. Uh, <laughs> well, congratulations on your, well, congratulations. Please definitely give me a ping. I will definitely buy your book. Oh, thank you. Hopefully next summer is is our target. Like, I mean, I already want a book like that because there's a lack of it. But Mm -hmm. after speaking with you, I'm sure it will be great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. There's such clarity. It's like your brain is like this well-organized medicine cabinet. Oh, and what is the question I asked you? You pull out the right thing. Thank and you. I'm so impressed with that. It thank makes you. you a wonderful podcast guest. Thank, thank you so much. I I really, really appreciate that feedback. That's wonderful. Yeah. And you were. All right. Yeah. Well, and I've enjoyed my time with you too. It's, it was so easy to talk to you. So <laughs> it could oh, be it too. Yeah. yeah. I did my re- I did my uh, revision. You did. Yeah. I was like really impressed by your questions. I got them and I was like, wow. <laughs> so. Well, I started my training last week. So I was like binging the PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. lot to go through. Yeah. For sure. Wonderful. All right. Well, hopefully I will meet you again in the RO community if I do get fully trained. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Who knows? Because I probably need some supervision or some sessions or something. But absolutely. Like, Absolutely. I'd love to do that and or, or hook you up with someone that you'd like. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, well, have a great rest of your evening. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. For more, please head to eggshelltherapy.com. There you will find more stories, articles, and resources for people just like me and you. Bye now. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
moving forwards, never looking back. Just one more foot in front of all those countless others, and we're there.